So where where are you at in the in the world? I am in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Oh, okay. So in in the cold north. <laughs> you, you, you know, I um I applied for a job in Toronto at York University, and um, I know it's not Calgary, but I've I may be coming up there that way. Maybe. Well, uh, I'm excited to hear that. I actually was a, a sister at the University of Toronto years ago, so. Oh, cool! <laughs> we uh, oh man, oh, cool. we we definitely have uh, we definitely have a lot in common. <laughs> yeah, we we gotta talk about that. Were you teaching yeah. film? Yeah. Filmmaking? Oh, it's dope. Um, I'm at LMU. This is where I'm at right now. I'm at LMU, and uh, I've been here five years, and I've been looking for a tenure position. So that's why I just started applying, and I made it to the second round with York. I have friends up there that say it's a great institution. I'm still learning a lot about like the Canadian universities, um, but I'm open to getting out of LA. For See, sure. if I were you, if that doesn't work out at yeah. York, I would honestly try Ryerson. Yeah. Okay, someone else said that. The, okay, the, fil- the okay. film program, and it's funny because I was a U of T guy, <laughs> and we, we <laughs> like because I I went to film school at University of Toronto in the Toronto Film School, so we always had every once a month we had competitions. So we would either go to Ryerson to go to U of T to the theater, and it, cool. and it was whoever had the best film that month. You put it up against somebody at Ryerson, <laughs> and every single time it was just like the big rivalry between between us and Ryerson. Uh, so, dude, that's cool. That's dope. <laughs> I went to I went to USC. I didn't finish, but it was like USC, AFI, and UCLA. We were always like trying to one up each other. Yeah, you know. Um, but it's some of these students had way too much money for these short films. Like one student spent $150,000 on his thesis. And I was just like, Oh God, man, <laughs> I could make like four features with that much money. You know what I'm saying? Well, exactly. <laughs> See, yeah. it, it was, I think my final thesis film was we raised 50,000 on mm. the streets of Toronto and nice. I made it for under ten, and I donated okay. the rest of the money. So <laughs> that's cool. <laughs> Yo, that's awesome, man. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I got some a couple of buddies in Toronto. I'm hoping I want to make a visit. I should be getting the vaccine soon because I'm, you know, in the one B category here in California. And then I'm gonna just travel. I'm gonna go see some friends. Obviously, you know, with the mask and all that. But um, I'm hoping things open up soon because I'm kind of tired of just. Sitting in my office. Hey, I'm I'm tired of just being in Calgary. So <laughs> <laughs> maybe I should do an introduction though. Cinephiles, audiophiles, ladies and germs, welcome to the film called podcast. Tonight, it's the award-winning filmmaker, LMU film professor, and a man that just blew me away at Slam Dance this year with his new film, The Sleeping Negro. It's Skinner Myers. Maybe we should start at True Detective, though. I worked on True Detective. I got sick and tired. That was the last show I worked on where I just, like, I can't do these 16-hour days anymore, you know? And, and, and like, the pay was not where it should have been. Mm-hmm. And that's when I started to kind of, like, try to find other ways to make money because it's, it's hard. I mean, it's hard, you know? Like, trying to be a filmmaker. What was your, your, <laughs> your essential position in True Detective? And what would you say you learned the most from that time? So I was in the art department and I was hired as a researcher on the second season when they shot in Cali in LA. And 
the the production designer said, you know, you're overqualified for this, but if you want the job, I'll give it to you. So I, I took it and um, I learned that things are not what it, what they're cracked up to be. It's uh, it's very it's crazy how certain people get opportunities to make TV and you're just, and you and you you're seeing how the sausage is made and you're like, oh man, this is like people are not professional. Like this is kind of like you know not strong writing. Then I was like watching people, um, for example, the, one of the art, we had two art directors. One of them was like, oh, I need to get my house remodeled. I'll just like squeeze this into the um, production design budget, order materials. And then I'll, so people were like stealing money. They were forcing um, some of our designers who were doing like set design to like design their back porch on the side. And then if they didn't do it, they would give them grief about it. I was just like, this is like disgusting. It was very toxic, and um, everyone, everyone was a director. Like, in my department, everyone was like, yo, I got this short film. I made like 15 <laughs> I was like, no. Like, <laughs> who are you? You know? And, and so that, that was when I actually wrote my f- first short film outside of film school. It was during that time because I had nothing else to do. I kept finishing my work, like, really early, and I would always get in trouble. They're like, you need to be busy. Make yourself busy. And I'm just like, there's nothing else to do. And so um, I learned that production was not for me at all um, in, ter- in terms of, you know, like thinking I needed a job in the industry to stay close to my goals. I was like, nah, this is not it. And um, I realized like, I'm just going to find a way to pay my bills. I don't care what it is. And then just like connect with people who I like and we'll just keep making art. So what led you to filmmaking? What was... What was the initial spark? Because didn't you have a poli-sci major to begin with? And, and you had a pretty storied past coming up. Yep. So can, can, yeah, can, so can you take us through all of that, I guess? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I started off uh, as a child. My dad was a musician and a, and a preacher. And my mom was, a, was an, an artist. She did lots of paintings. So I grew up around art, but also grew up around music. And I wanted to be a drummer. And so I... I started playing the drums at four and um, I wasn't that great at it. I played a little bit in church and I was like, okay, maybe I'll be a musician. I grew up with like funk, jazz, fusion. Um, and I remember I was like six or seven years old and I got cast in a school play and, and all the mothers of the kids were making the costumes. And I was like, oh, I like this. I like being on stage in front of people. And so from that point on, I was like, I, I kind of want to try to do this again. And someone from Cal- I lived in, I lived all over the South and, and, and the East. And at this time I was in Columbus, Ohio. And someone at a mall or something was like, hey, uh, walked up to my mom. I was like, oh, your son has a good look. Maybe you should take him to California. There's commercials that he can do. My mom's like, no, he's not doing any of that stuff. And once I realized that my parents weren't going to support that, I was like, I got to figure out how to do that as I get older. And so I had dreams of becoming an actor and right after high school, I, um, I left Shelby, North Carolina. That's where I was in high school. And I moved to Florida, where I had some friends at, St. Petersburg, to be, to be exact. And I, I, I wore, like, um, I did promotions. They called it promotional modeling, but it was silly because I used to wear, like, an M&M costume so you couldn't see me and I'd pass out candy. And I did that for a stint, and I was trying to figure out how to get involved with theater. Met a woman who was like, oh, you should think about modeling, pay me, you know, $2,000 and I'll get you a comp card. Well, it was a complete scam and I fell for it because I was like 18 years old. 
And I even went to New York City chasing this lady, thinking that she was going to give me some opportunities, and I found myself homeless. And so once I was in New York City homeless and, like, no support, my parents didn't really know what was going on because I dropped out of school at the time. Um, and my parents, like, we never came for money, so they didn't have money to send me. I started to figure out, like, what can I do? Who could I meet? And I just, man, I was, like, taking odd jobs. I worked at a shoe store. And I ended up meeting this woman named um, Patricia Mousseri, who was a soap actress at the time, had done some Broadway. I met her at, like, this, this, uh, this like, church function thing for actors. And I was, she took me under her wing, took me to One Life to Live, and I met all these actors who were, who were young, but kind of well-known in that world. And they just kind of hung out with me. And those were my first group of friends. Um, David Fumero, who's in the movie, I've known him for 20 plus years, you know? And, and so once I got around that, they're like, oh, you should try to get on the show. It never worked out. But then I started taking acting classes and I realized like, okay, I need to study theater. I need to know the history, and I want to get better at this. And so I just threw myself into the theater community um, and studied with Gene Frankel at the Gene Frankel Theater, the Michael Howard Studios. Michael Howard used to teach at Juilliard. Gene Frankel passed away a long time ago, but he was an old theater teacher and did some coaching. And I just started doing off-off-Broadway plays. And so I, for me, it was theater was everything. I'd done some theater in high school, and I thought, okay, this is my ticket. I'm going to go to LA and make it. Well, um, after doing some off-off-Broadway off plays, never booking a commercial, I moved to LA. I land a commercial agent like the first week. One of my buddies from another soap came back to LA, took some headshots, I got a commercial agent. Who, by the way, is still my commercial agent to this day. But at the time I thought, okay, I've arrived, you know, and I didn't book any commercials. I got really close with Michelle Gondry on a Burger King commercial. They actually booked me and then they released me the day before we shot. And that really crushed my spirit. So I like gave up. And I told my commercial agents, like, I'm done with commercials. I was getting close to booking TV jobs and it never <clears throat> came to fruition. Um, so <clears throat> I ended up going back to New York City and I decided to try to you know, study something else. I was like, I'm done with entertainment. Let me go to school and just get a regular degree, a regular job. So I did that around, I did that at um, New School University. I ended up taking acting classes because it was an easy A. Easy a. I was like, okay, I, love, I really love acting. Let me give this another go. And I, I bounced around to some universities, landed at Columbia University and booked an off-Broadway play uh, that was a revival of a play that Denzel and Sidney Poitier had produced like 20 years prior called You Shouldn't Have Told um, by Anne Scratching Thompson. I believe that was a playwright. And the revival wasn't as successful as the original, but we did it at the Playwrights Horizon and I had a great part. And that was the first time being in front of like a lot of people who are coming, you know, you're doing show after show after show. And I was like, okay, how can I sustain this? And I was like, I was tired of auditioning for Thug of the Week roles and all these, you know, law and order type TV shows to practice. And I said, all right, let me get a camera and let me get final draft. And I'm just gonna start writing and I'm gonna start shooting stuff. And the first stuff that I wrote, I had a buddy of mine who was a screenwriter at the time. He was like, I read your script. It's probably the worst script I've ever read in my entire life. You should probably quit writing and stick to acting. And I was like, whoa. I was like, okay, that's, that's harsh. Um, 
And I'm glad I didn't follow his advice. And after that, I, 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 got, I switched my major from film to Japanese. I studied Japanese at Columbia University thinking like, okay, let me diversify myself. My wife was from Japan, but she lived in the States for like over two decades. And um, so I was doing that and I booked a movie. I booked a movie with Danny Trejo. At the, at the time it was called Shiloh Falls. I think it was called Shiloh Falls. And then they changed the name. No, I'm sorry. It was called, um, I was, there was one, it was one title. Anyway, it became Shiloh Falls. It was a zombie Western movie. And I remember the director saying, hey, this could be your big break. And I was like, oh, maybe you're right. And it just did not turn out as everyone thought it would be. At the same time, I landed a record contract with my band. I, I, made, I had a grunge alt band. Um, and we made a little record. And it didn't work out. The label folded. Um, I made another record with a producer in Philly. So at the time, I was pursuing music. I had this movie. I was like, oh, movie's coming out. I got this record coming out. None of it panned out. And I decided to throw myself into filmmaking as a, doing documentaries. So I went to grad school for politics, but then I went to Uganda and I made a, um, I attempted to make a feature length documentary, which um, kind of became like a fly on the wall perspective uh, of this village and these kids in the slums. Didn't really have any success with that, uh, but I was learning, right? I used a 5D, a 7D and a Zoom H4N. Um, and we made that film in 2011. I said, you know, let me apply to film school. So I applied to film school and I got into USC. Um, and I was like, from what I, and I didn't know anything about USC, right? Uh, I was like, okay, I think this is the best film, film school in the world from what I've heard. So I should probably go. My wife was like, no, you have lots of student loan debt, which I still do. And I was like, I think I, think I should do it. So we packed up, moved to LA. I went to film school probably within four weeks of the semester, I was like, ah, I can't do this, right? Um, this is not for me. But I was so reliant on the student loans to pay my rent. And my wife was pregnant with our first child. It was hard to like break out of that cycle of like, let me get the student loan check to pay the bills. So I had to stay for two more semesters after that. Finally was able to cut the cord, but it was rough. It was really, really rough because I didn't have a way to, to really have any income. I'd been a bartender in New York for years, 12 years, and the bartending wasn't the same in LA. The money wasn't the same. Um, and so I struggled. I did some freelance work. I lived off credit cards. Then I landed a high school teaching job, uh, teaching film at Star Prep Academy. And that lasted for about a year. Pay was horrible, but the people were very sweet and good to me. And I did book, I ended up booking some um, national commercials that kind of supplemented my income for a couple, two years straight. Did Pepsi, I did jeep um uh i did a cell phone commercial some some other stuff that really helped pay for some of the short films i was making this entire time i was making one short per year just to kind of stay sharp and and, and to try things out because i'm i'm relatively new to filmmaking i mean i'm 40 almost 41 i've been I, my first film was i was 31 you know and um then i landed a part-time teaching job at loyola marymount university which eventually turned into a full-time teaching job. And so I've been doing that and trying to figure out how to make my first feature, narrative feature. And uh, I've written a lot of scripts thinking that these were the ones and then they never materialized. The budgets always grew and grew. And I finally, I guess, found one that I was able to kind of get a little bit of money for. And then we, we shot it in like 
eight days over three months. Well, when did you start shooting this? Was it during the pandemic or, or did you start before? We start, we start before we started August, 2019. Um, and a priest friend of my, uh, a priest who's a friend of mine out in Glendale, he had supported one of my short films, um, called Frank Embry because he was from the same town that Frank was from and had been doing some research on his life connected with my short. And then we connected that way. And he gave me $2,000 cash because he read the script to the sleeping Negro. And he was like, it's great. Here's some money. This is all I can give you. Hopefully it helps. And I, I didn't know what the budget was going to be at the time. I just knew that I had to start shooting. So I took that two grand, got a small crew of like three people together and um, we, we got a free location through the help of one of my producers, John Campbell. Um, and we shot for two days, no dialogue. We shot the opening shot of the movie, me floating over the bed and some B-roll stuff. And I figured, you know, I can take this footage, cut a teaser and then try to raise money that way. And what happened was I just kept sending the script out to people in my orbit saying, hey, I'm in production on my first feature. Here's the script. We still need to raise some more money. And I wasn't really thinking that was going to work because it never worked before. I've always either done crowdfunding or self-funded my films. And people started writing checks. Now, they weren't big checks at all, but there were enough to kind of, I could plan, you know, a weekend here, right? And then wait three or four weeks and then another weekend. And it also allowed me to rehearse um, sections of the film for months at a time while I waited for money to come in. So um, with Nikon, the guy that plays my friend in the movie, you know, we, we basically rehearsed for three months and hung out for three months um, until we had enough money to shoot our scenes. Same with Julie, who I've known for 17 years. We used to wait tables together uh, in New York City when we were younger. You know, we got a chance to rehearse for a little while because I didn't have any money to shoot our scene. <laughs> And it just kind of worked out that way. It wasn't completely planned. Like, it was hard to shoot a movie that way. Um, I definitely, like, I gained probably, I don't know, 30 pounds between the beginning and end of that movie. Um, stress, teaching, having two kids, um, and still trying to cast actors as we were shooting and rewriting scenes. Um, there's a lot that that we shot that's not in the movie. We had, our first cut was like 85 minutes and we did another deep cut on it. Probably, I wanna say this past November and that's the cut that everyone has been watching, which I, I do think the new cut is way stronger than what we previously had. But there was a lot of um, filler shots that um, disrupted, I think, the overall um, tempo and rhythm, you know. Um, it was still hard hitting, but not as hard, maybe. I don't know. I guess there was more breaks in between. But um, it sucked <laughs> to make a film that way. Um, and I don't ever want to do it like that ever again. But I didn't have any money. You know, I, I put my own money into it as well. I mean, I probably put, I don't know, 15 grand of my own money um, towards the production. Um, um, I booked a Super Bowl commercial. And so I used some of that money to, to fund parts of the post-production process, you know? I just want to say this, and I don't say this very often. You are a filmmaker that everybody needs to keep an eye on. And this is a film oh, that thanks, I, I truly believe everybody needs needs to see. And I, I, I think it's 
<laughs> I think it's a detriment to <laughs> say you. to say that a first narrative film is something that that you should keep an eye on a director. It ninety yeah. percent of the time it doesn't pan out. There is yeah. something. There is an essence to this film that truly blew me away. And thank you. I felt it, but there's the, the, there's a scene, a particular scene where all you're doing is walking in the hallway back to the apartment um, mm-hmm. before shit goes down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that walk in the hallway was it, it, it was it was a filmmaker that that is going to have a lot of life and 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 really good things are to come from you. So I hope everybody oh, does check you. this out. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, I, I hope so, too. I really hope so, too. We um, we're definitely going to play more festivals. Um, I can't say which ones, but we are, you know, shortlisted on some really big ones. So I really hope um, they come through on the international side. And um, I'm, you know, we'll see. Like, it's, it's one, I feel like it's one of those things where I only had a certain amount of money, a certain amount of time, but I knew what I was what I wanted to communicate. Uh, Tarkovsky talks about how art in a way should prepare us for death, right? It should like basically ravage us so that we become better people. And um, it's not like I didn't make the film to say, hey, notice my pain because that doesn't work. I mean, if that worked, then by the time we saw these lynching postcards, right? Like people would be like, oh, we got to stop this. But that didn't, <laughs> that, that didn't stop. Um, but it was just kind of like, uh, how can I, I don't know, how can I com- communicate um, not only my pain and frustrations, but just how uh, contradictory humans are in general, right? Good to be human is to be contradictory in, in a lot of ways. And I was trying out stuff that I wasn't sure if it was going to land. And um, I mean, we only had six or seven hours of shooting time per, per day just because of people's schedule and location. So, I mean, if, you, if we were to, like, shoot that movie, say, 12-hour days straight, it would have been, like, a four-day production, like, straight up. And um, I think everyone that was involved just wanted to try to do something that was a little different. And I, and I appreciate my crew 100%, because without them, obviously, I, I couldn't have done it. I mean, it was... Uh, stressful and very tiresome well you had done a lot of the the behind the scenes stuff on your other films from from shooting it to editing it why did you decide to step back a little bit on this one and and just <laughs> let every let, bring in more people and, and let it flow yeah. even more stepping away a little bit yeah you know i was uh i think i was getting burnt out i was getting burnt out and i felt to be honest i was uh i was losing confidence and myself, because I had made a short film in Russian uh, called Things of Beauty Burn, and I really wanted to, I don't know, I really wanted to direct in Russian. I don't speak Russian at all, and it was hard, and I felt like, okay, I didn't really accomplish what I really wanted to accomplish on that, um, but with this, I was like, okay, I hadn't acted in six years uh, I mean, that's not true. I did do a web series with a friend of mine who, who made a really funny web series that I was an actor in. But that was like two-day production, 30-day script. And with this, I, I really wanted to put my best foot forward. So I was a little scared. I was scared. I was scared to be the lead actor, produce this thing, um, raise the money, 
you know, write, direct. And I was like, if I have to like edit and do other stuff, I don't know if I have the bandwidth to do that. And honestly, I was really uh, burnt out by the end of it where it was a relief to kind of just pass it on to other people who I felt shared a similar aesthetic and, the, and uh, philosophy of film and art as me. And it was, it was a much needed like break from that, from that process. And I had, honestly, I'd never done it on a feature level. Like the short films, that's a different, I mean, at the same time, like shorts are harder, right? In a way, but um, they're really intense, but they're over usually in like three or four days. And although this shot eight to nine days over three months, it was way, it was way more taxing because I think, um, like when I, was a, when I was a musician, I would write songs, perform them live. And if people really responded to it, like that really nourished my soul. If I had a show and like no one showed up and the sound guy was just clapping, I would feel really awful because I'm like, yo, I'm really exposing myself and no one's here um, to appreciate it. And so I was afraid, I think, to, to try to do all of it because I was like, if it fell flat on its face, then I would have been like, okay, I'm done. I don't know if I can make any more films. Um, just too hard emotionally, spiritually, and, and financially, you know. But I'm glad I had those people to support me in the post process. Well, coming into your first uh, feature narrative film, what would you say that you've learned the most from your time teaching film coming in, into this process? Oh, that's a great question. I think, uh, you know, five years ago, I probably would have made it, I would have attempted to make a different film. Like some of the films I've written back in the day, I'm going through and I'm rewriting them with a new perspective. I've learned that, you know, it's really important to, uh, to keep, it's really important to find your identity and what you're trying to do and be as unique as, as possible. Uh, I think before I was probably trying to conform a little bit too much to what I thought would work in the industry. And from teaching with, you know, teaching grad students, undergrad students, watching their processes and really watching them struggle to find out what they want to say, it clarified what I really wanted to do with this medium of filmmaking. And as I've gotten older, I'm like, I don't have time to waste. And so I really started to think, how can I create like my own cinematic language? How can I, how can I create like a new black cinematic language? And I really started to focus on that when it came to this project, more so than any other film that I've shot before, because I wanted to have something that, I mean, it's hard to like reinvent the wheel, but I wanted to attempt to have something that hadn't, hadn't really been seen before, or maybe in a combination that really hadn't been done before. And I'm, tr I'm trying to do that with all the other films that I want to make. Like, how can I present this that's in a way that people can feel, like understand it, it's clear, they feel it, but in a way that we hadn't really seen. Like trying to expand my imagination. And I think if people tried to do that in all areas of activity, we could maybe start to begin to solve some issues that we're having as humans in the societies we've created and structured. Um, and so I think that was the biggest thing, like watching my students go through that process over and over, I realized there were some gaps and how I was viewing art and filmmaking, black cinema, and what my goals were. And, you know, I have friends who work in the studio system and maybe they're happy and that's cool, but I, I realize like that way of living 
was not for me. Like that way of making movies was not for me um, because I just feel like I have a short amount of time and there's a lot of stuff that I want to say. Bellatar is one of my favorite filmmakers along with a whole bunch of others. But, you know, he's, the touring horse was his last feature narrative and he basically said he had nothing else to say. And I really respected that. And I feel similar in the sense that, like, you know, I have like four or five other features I would like to make. Beyond that, I don't, I don't know if I want to do this forever in this way, you know. I just wrote my first novel. Like, I'm really, I really want to write more books. I'm working on a PhD. Like, there's other things I really want to explore, like, in art and other ways. So I don't, we'll see, you know. But the, my students really help me solidify, like, what I really want to do aesthetically, theoretically, um, with film, I think, you know. Do you think that the landscape is changing for African-American filmmakers, or do you kind of see it, like, plateaued a little bit? And even even in the film school world, do you think that they're inviting enough for African filmmakers to, to come that, out? That's a great question, and it's funny. I'm doing an interview on Thursday where I think we're discussing that in, in depth, but I mean, f- from what I'm seeing, I don't think so. And the reason I say that is because Hollywood is a huge machine in America. If you're a black filmmaker and you want to have any type of success where you can like support yourself financially, at least in the film side, TV is a little different. Um, I feel like you can be a lot more radical in certain sectors of TV that you can't be with film. But with, with black filmmakers, if you don't embrace or assimilate into Hollywood, you're going to struggle to get financing and to find a place for yourself. Um, you know, I, I, I think there's, there's more opportunity for black filmmakers if they're willing to play that game, right? I, I, I totally believe that, and I see it. But is the black cinema that's coming out advancing or improving black culture in America? I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't think so, you know? Um, if you look at black filmmakers from, like, the L.A. Rebellion era in the 60s and 70s, um, they dipped into, like, the ideology of third world cinema to really showcase what black people were dealing with on a social political level here in America. And there's a, there's like an intense antagonistic bite to their films that we don't really see anymore. Uh, Spike Lee in the beginnings of his career, he had that same type of bite, but Hollywood is tends to co-opt a message. They tend to co-opt a movement and redefine it or, and, and make it more palatable. And I think that's what we're seeing. Like there's more black content out there but is it radical, right? And if it's radical, is it, it's probably not getting a lot of love or a lot of opportunities. Um, and that's, that's what I'm, I struggle with because as I'm looking at the films that are coming out of black, and also too, some of the black filmmakers, even as a, as a professor, you know, I understand and I know the black, the history of the black cinematic tradition because I've studied it and I'm interested in it and I've watched all those films. A lot of, current black filmmakers, younger ones, probably, and I don't, I don't speak for all of them, but 
at least in my experience as a professor with the ones I'm dealing with at LMU, they're not really privy to all that. And that will um, make one make a certain type of film if you don't really know that history, you know. Um, I don't know. I just feel like there's a lot of uh, films that kind of scratch the surface, but they don't do a deep dive in some of the issues because they're worried about box office receipts or that audience. Um, you know, and t like Tarkovsky talked about how the most important audience is the filmmaker. You should make the film that you want to see, right? And then you'll attract people who are like-minded and then you slowly build a community that way. Not like, what's the demographic for this? So a lot of it is rooted in capitalism, uh, commodification of art. Um, a lot of black, and it's not just black filmmakers, a lot of filmmakers in general, at least in America, are jumping into this thinking like, one day maybe I can win an award. One day maybe I can pay my bills as a filmmaker. Like the idea of like being a front singer in a rock and roll band. Maybe I can do an interview and get my picture taken. And, and the, the, the focus is not really on the art. It's like, how can I just do enough to seem like I'm an artist? What are the buzzwords? This is why, and you know, I'm not knocking Parasite because I actually really enjoy that film, but I felt a lot of people who didn't really understand art and cinema were just like, yo, this is the best thing since like whatever. And it was easy for them to jump on that, especially on Twitter where it's like, yo, I love Parasite too. Like, you know, and I was just like, ugh. You know, I don't know. See, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned Parasite because to me, that's a foreign film for people that have never, ever watched a foreign film before. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> that, exactly right. It, that's, you, you, you hit the nail on the head. I, you said it way better than I could explain it, but that's what I was feeling. I was like, you have not watched any foreign cinema, have you? You know, it, it, it was cool for them to like it. And that's what I'm saying. Like, it's the, the idea that, oh, I'm hip. I'm cool. Like, I listen to this type of music or... And if you start to, it's like the person who, say you speak another language and I come to you and I start talking to you very basic, like, hey, how are you doing? My name is blah, blah, blah. And then you're like, okay, cool. And then you start dropping some like real, you know, uh, conversation on me. I'm just like, oh, dude, I was just joking around. Like, I don't, like, that's why I felt like how people were responding to that film. And so, but that, that mentality is in a lot of filmmakers where they have the right buzzwords, the right aesthetic, maybe. Maybe they shoot on film and maybe they got the right camera moves and they reference like on the periphery, like really a lot of dope movies, but they don't, there's, there's something missing underneath that. And I think for me, it's, it goes way deeper than like, I don't really expect to make a lot of money as a filmmaker. This is why I've worked at trying to find other ways to pay my bills. I'm a teacher, you know, um, because with the time I had left on earth, I want, I, want, I, gotta, I want to say some things, and they're, they're not going to be easy things to swallow. They're going to be pretty antagonistic. And, you know, um, I'm trying to show at least black filmmakers, and I'm not the only one. There's other, like my boy, Mawari Garima, um, we're going to be chopping it up at, a, at a, a conversation event on Wednesday night. He's doing the same thing. Uh, my boy, Ntume Gant, who's a professor and filmmaker out of New York, he's doing the same thing. We're trying to make cinema um, that is not only radical, but it says something that's real and honest and authentic, and it doesn't fall into that Western imperialistic lens of what art and cinema should be. You know what I'm saying? Like structurally, aesthetically, um, 
you know, there's a lot of, I've been reading some of the comments on the film and some people are like, oh, um, it's rough around the edges. Uh, the dialogue is stilted. And for me, imperfect cinema is the antithesis to cinema, which I personally equate with whiteness. What is whiteness? Whiteness is an impoverished idea of freedom, right? So it's like, I'm trying to do something real. It's like those Zeppelin records where you hear John Bonham counting off before they record. Like that to me is, that's like part of it too, right? And I feel like we've become, when I say we, like artists and, or filmmakers in general, we've become so addicted to perfectionism. That's rooted in like, you know, uh, so much crap. <laughs> um, and I mean, even look at like, you know, if you shoot on an 8K camera, you can't even project the 8K, but like an 8K camera, everything's super crisp and clean. And if you look at old movies back in the day, the ones that I, you know, think are really amazing, man, there's like imperfections, but that's what makes it beautiful. You know what I'm saying? That's, that's what gives it feeling. Yeah. So, I don't know. I just feel like there needs to be, uh, I think a lot of filmmakers just, I don't know, man. It's, it's hard because as a professor, I'm trying to, it's hard because I teach production classes. So there's not a lot of room to go outside the syllabus and be like, yo, we're going to spend a week looking at, you know, Medhondo films or Muhammad Saleh Hadoun films. But I try to squeeze a little bit of that in. Usually it's in conversations outside of the class when certain students like really jive with me and then we connect and I'm like, okay, watch some of these films. Let's talk about this in the office hours. But I'm trying to do my best because I don't, you know, we're all unique individuals. And all I'm saying is like, we should double down on our uniqueness and not conform. I'm glad that you've mentioned this because it's been an ongoing theme <laughs> throughout this entire podcast <laughs> that I honestly don't believe artists are doing enough at the moment through yeah. political means, through just, social change means i don't feel like yep. like filmmakers yep. and even musicians are doing enough but yep. on a wider scale i'm curious as to what you think do you think the uprising in the streets are going to lead to real change this time do you do you see a difference okay that's man that's a great question that's, and that's deep part of me does not see a difference what i see more of is performative actions um, <laughs> what I see is that people who feel that they're progressive or liberal are verbally acknowledging pain and suffering. But as long as they're willing to maintain their status quo or not have it disrupted, they'll perform all the performative stuff. They'll say all the right things that they can. Um, even with corporations, I mean, you know, at least in America, black people, it's almost like, okay, you, you come, the country was started on genocide and slavery. As a country, we've never dealt with that. We never confronted that. We've always whitewashed our history. Um, and black people have always struggled. The goalposts have constantly been moved so I think for, I mean, I think there's a more awareness globally as to, as to how messed up the system is because there's more non-people of color who are being affected by it now, right? And they don't like how it feels. And we need a coalition. We need a coalition 
of everyone to fight the system. But I see a lot of performative stuff, man, especially in the corporate level. It's like, yeah, okay, cool, Black Lives Matter, cool, yeah, let's get some black art. But whoa, 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 let's have a certain type of black art, right? Let's not have it antagonize white supremacy or capitalism. Let's not, let's not go too hard, right? I mean, it's, and I can only speak for myself, but I, um, there's, a, there's a great uh, philosophy uh, PhD student who's about to become a professor um, called the Funky Academic, and he talks about how you, know, you should bite the hand that feeds you because that hand has stole all the food and resources from you. And they're trying to only give you partial of it back. So yeah, you should bite it back, you know, basically saying, you know, you got to fight the system. And so I, I don't know. I don't think, I don't want to be a pessimist. I do think on an individual level, things have changed. People have, have been um, woken to some of the injustice, but I'm just like, yo, this has been happening for decades, hundreds of years. You know what I'm saying? Like it's been happening. I remember as a kid in the eighties, uh, of just like, and I lived in the South. I mean, I used to walk through Klan rallies, like in high school. It's been happening, but the change is technology. You know, before it was postcards. Now we're seeing it in real time. And some people can't handle that. So I hope in the future, overall, there will be change, but I don't know. I mean, because the people who are in power are, are co-opting the message. They're, they're trying to control the narrative. You know, um, it's hard because it's like you're, I don't know, you're fighting Goliath and you need, you need a coalition of people, but everyone has their own idea of what that looks like and what that should be. So I think there may be more opportunity for black artists like in, initially, but if they find say a whole bunch of radical black artists, I don't think those radical black artists are going to be tolerated uh, for for too long, if that makes sense, you know? It's almost like the spook who sat by the door. I don't know if you've seen that film, but it's like you get in there and they think, okay, okay, he's not too radical or they're not too radical. They're going to play the game. <laughs> and then they finance some stuff and then you do some stuff that they didn't approve of, um, like Melvin Van Peebles used to do, you know, like with Watermelon Man and stuff like that. You're like, yeah, yeah, this is the script. Don't worry about it. And then you just make a completely different movie. Like if that's going to happen, then they'll start shutting that off. And they'll start controlling who gets to get the money to make stuff. This is give you a little bit of hope that you see things like Judas and the Black Messiah trying to infiltrate mainstream, main, like mainstream film, essentially, with these revolutionary messages. Yeah, I mean, I, I do. I think, like, I mean, it's kind of hard to make a completely, obviously, a complete revolutionary uh, film through. Hollywood studio system, but I, you know, I do think like the door is open a little bit, you know, I still think there's that thumb of control, like, okay, we'll let you say communism once, or like, we'll let you say the word socialism, you know what I'm saying? But to really get deep down into the concepts of that, I don't know, I don't think Hollywood would allow that. Um, I think if, I hope that Judas and the Black Messiah, for people who don't know anything about Fred Hampton, it will um, make them want to desire more, to learn more about Fred Hampton and, and his policies. I think if you, but I think a lot of people already know about the history of the Black Panthers who went to see that film. There, 
there is a little bit of hope, right? But I still think that it's, most of the work is going to have to be done outside the studio system, you know? Um, but again, if we look at it from a bigger perspective, films like Judas and the Black Messiah mixed in with like, you know, really radical independent media or, or film, that eventually will move the needle overall, right? I mean, it, we have to look at it. It's not just like individual parts. So I am hopeful and I'm not, you know, it's like, if a Hollywood studio came to me and said, here's some money, completely hands off, do whatever you want. Okay, let's, let's play ball. Um, and maybe, maybe that'll happen, you know? Maybe that is happening. I don't, I'm not really privy to uh, the studio system because I just never worked in that system. I do know that some friends who've done it in the past have been capped off at the knees when it came to like trying to really put their voice forward. And I don't ever want to be in that position um, at my age and where I'm at just artistically. But yeah, for the younger cats who are coming up, maybe if they get in, they can keep pushing that door open more and more. I think like if you look at uh, desegregation in America, you know, they started with the kids first, which was awful. Should have been reversed. You know, you start with the top down. You, you, you desegregate administration and leadership. Right. And so I think more importantly, those who control green light power, financing power and the studios, we need to change how that operates and how that mentality is, because that will um, be that will solidify the foundation for change once we start changing other departments underneath that. So by the time we get to green lighting, like another Judas and the Black Messiah, um, because what I don't want is like, okay, we gave you Judas and the Black Messiah. What more do you want? You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And then you have to wait like five years for, so it should be like, okay, cool. Judas and Black Messiah. What's next? Like keep that door open. And I feel like it, we're not there yet. I feel like it's mainly independent cinema. Raise your own financing. Look, for the next movie I'm going to make, I'm probably going to have to get financing from Europe, to be honest with you. Because it's going to be even a much more hard-hitting film than The Sleeping Negro. Um... And I just don't see like white American financiers being like, yeah, let's fund that movie, you know, but we'll see who knows. I could be completely wrong. Hey, I'm, know? I'm very excited to hear that. It's even going to be more hard. hitting. <laughs> 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 well, what, yeah, it's <laughs> what, what, what can we expect from you coming up? Well, there's, um, I'm hoping to get my book, like find a home for that and get that released. Cause I'm really it's a very uh, intense film. I mean, film. It's a book called Jim Crow. I'm really excited about it. And I want to make that into like a longer series. Um, on the film side, my producing partner and I, uh, Matt Palmieri, we are um, we're going to be focusing on making Frank Embry. It's a short film that I made about a lynching of Frank who was murdered in 1899. We're, we're going to make that into a feature film. And the script is done. Um, it's going to be, um, I'm going to shoot in 35 millimeter, uh, black and white. And uh, it's probably going to have a lot of slow cinema sensibilities in it. Um, and the way that it's going to be structured is over like a seven day, like the last seven days of his life, pulled from all the research I had done, you know, 15 years ago. I actually found his family. So I've been in touch with his family, his brother's 
granddaughter's 90 and it's her granddaughter that I've been in touch with who actually is in Canada right now um, working. I think she's in Vancouver. Um, so that's the next, that's my focus. Cause I've always wanted to honor Frank's memory. I wanted to honor this man, his life. Um, there's a lot of things that I'm going to be pointing out about American culture, white Christianity, sexuality, um, all of it, you know, uh, control of the black male body by white women, like all of it. And so, um, much bigger budget than what I had for TSN. And we already have a couple of actors already on board, but we're going to slowly put that together. Um, and that's my next goal is to make that movie before I do anything else. Cause the other films that I have, uh, are in different genres, but they all are in a way hard hitting in a way. But, you know, I have other films that I've written that I really want to explore, but I, I want to get the Frank Embry thing done because um, I just felt connected to him from the moment I saw his photograph when I was in college, when I did this, uh, I was on a library trip. And out of all the lynching photographs I've ever watched, his was the only one where he, his photograph was taken while he was alive, front and back, and then they lynched him, and then they took another picture, and they were all made in post, to postcards, and they were given out as gifts to people. That's what, that's what happened. So that's the next big project. I'm really stoked on it. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a biopic in a way, but not unlike anything that I don't think I've seen, really. Um, so that's, that's, what, that's the next goal. When that is completed, please come back on the show. Oh, for sure! Man. I love this. <laughs> we'll, uh, yeah, this is me. We'll, we'll we'll do this. We'll do this all over again. Skinner, yeah. thank you, truly from the bottom of my heart. Thank you so much for coming on. I I really yeah, think thank the, you for having me. Yeah, you, you're such a vibrant <laughs> voice in filmmaking right now, and I really hope everybody goes and checks out the Sleeping Negro. It's they, it's fucking phenomenal. Thank you, man. I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed chatting with you. So uh, let's obviously stay in touch, too. Of course. And if I, I find my way up there, um, hopefully we can meet in person, of too, course. eventually. <laughs> Thanks, Skinner. Cool. Thank you, man. Thank you for listening. Catch Skinner Myers at SkinnerMyers.com. You can find that in the show notes. His film, The Sleeping Negro, just played Slam Dance. It should be hitting the festival circuit this year. Keep an eye out for that. You need to check that film out. And this concludes our broadcast day.